You're listening to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations, all while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their income and more. Now here's your host, Robin Waite. Welcome back, everybody. It is the next episode of the Fearless Business Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Waite, the Fearless Business Coach. And I've got an amazing guest on today in the form of Marcel Petipa. Welcome, Marcel. Marcel is the CEO and co-founder of Parakito, a company dedicated to helping agencies measure and improve their profitability by streamlining their operations and reporting systems, a problem he discovered while running his own agency back in his early 20s. Um, well, Marcel, we're going to hear all about your agency, but just to kick things off, I'm really interested to hear about, well, here's, here's an interesting way to look at this. How are businesses and agencies not using data currently that they should be using? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I think the the biggest problem that most agencies have is that they don't know what their margins are and they don't know how to measure it and they don't know how to take control of that margin and improve it. And I think you know so much of the advice out there has to do with raising price, which of course is usually a, a straightforward thing to do. Most people have an opportunity to raise their price, but it's only one of the ways in which you can improve your margins. And so I think it, it's just somewhat of a, there's a lot of reductionist kind of advice out there around improving this. And without really understanding the business model and without having these numbers, I think a lot of agency owners have a lot more trouble scaling and a lot more cash flow issues and a lot slower growth than they could uh, because there's just not enough meat on the bone every time they sell a new piece of work. Do you think it, so, I mean, it's obvious that we get into business in the first place because we want to make profit, right? And have a bit of cash in the bank and buy some nice things for ourselves and for our family as well. But um, do you think it's through ignorance or do you think it's down to things like time that people don't, aren't able to sort of understand and invest in the data and data element of their business? They don't know what those levers are that they should be pulling necessarily in order yeah. to grow a successful, profitable agency. Personally, I think it's a knowledge gap. And I think this for a few reasons. First of all, most people that start an agency don't start it because they're interested in the business model of an agency. Usually it's because they're just really good at the thing that they're selling and they kind of get pulled into starting a business that eventually ends up bigger than they imagined that it would, uh, that it would get. And so like most of the time, there's not a lot of formal business training uh, behind the folks that are starting these businesses. And they're having to learn how to take that side of the business in stride. Uh, and then the second issue is that there isn't actually really much literature on this, especially not much literature on how to do it in the modern age when, you know, agencies are typically not billing by the hour anymore. They're typically not using a rate card. So there's a lot more nuance to how you think about this stuff and how you think about the business model. And there's just not a lot of good information out there, which is part of the reason that we started trying to create a lot of content because these are all the kinds of answers that I was looking for when I ran my agency and I just had a really hard time finding them. And what what are the like the most common symptoms, you know, you you probably come across a lot of business owners agencies that they're just like oh god I was working, I, you know, I was up late, so, you know, I, I kept asleep last night just thinking about that you must have a long list of things that are keeping your clients awake at night before they sort of lean in and go right we've got to knuckle down and fix this. Yeah. Most of the clients that we end up working with are the ones that know how to sell, 
they're growing fast, they're getting more client work than they ever imagined, the team's getting bigger, and yet they're still having trouble making payroll. The cash flow is still really tight. Their team might grow in size, and yet their bottom line profit is not improving. And sometimes it's even getting worse. And they're, they're thinking to themselves, how could our revenue be going up so much? And yet as owners, we're pulling less and less money out of the business. So those are some of the symptoms that they're, they're often feeling. And, and then there's also issues like, you know, my accountant's telling me I'm overstaffed. My team's telling me that they're overworked and I'm not sure who to believe. I, um, you know, I'm trying to figure out the data, but every time I pull a time report or I pull estimates, the, the data is a total mess. I can't rely on it. The structure's all over the place and it's really painstaking to try and get some of these answers. So these are some of the things that you're feeling and, you know, hopefully we can address some of them today. So I'm starting to get a picture already that, um, you know, it's not it's not about just, you know, having a casual look at your profit and loss account and seeing how profitable you are at the end of the month. Actually, there is a lot more going on once you start to dig beneath the surface of it. And, you know, it used to make me angry when I got the excuses of, oh, I'm not very good with numbers, but actually maybe some of the numbers are more complex. So it is harder to for people to understand. Are you seeing that quite a lot? Yeah. And, you know, one of the other big problems, uh, and I don't really like, I don't want to attack the accounting industry too much, but we audit a lot of agencies through Parakeeto and we almost never see financial statements, which are kind of like level zero of understanding your profitability. And it's like, you go to jail if you don't have financial statements, everybody has them. Almost none of the agencies that we've audited have the right numbers on there and their accountants don't understand their business clearly, because if they did, then they wouldn't be calculating their gross margin in the way that they are. And so it's, you know, a lot of these business owners, it's not that they're not looking at these numbers and making an effort. It's that the numbers they're getting are not properly structured and are not answering the right questions. And while they might be technically correct in terms of, you know, when you file your taxes and stuff, you're not going to get in trouble. The strategy behind the data, right? If we think about this in terms of art and science, they have a scientist working on their data, but they don't have, you know, somebody who understands kind of the nuance and art of the business and is thinking of the data in terms of how do we help this answer a question for the business owner. And then beyond that, financials are great. Everybody has them, but usually they're a little slow. You're looking at them at the end of the month, maybe two, three weeks after the month is over once everything's been reconciled and you're looking backwards. So once you start to get a grip on your finances, how do you introduce numbers that allow you to get more frequent touch points in between those financial statements and touch points that are much more precise, that tell you things about more nuanced areas of the business so you can actually start to understand where the issues are? Because, um, you know, of course, lots of us can look at a financial statement and say, yeah, we're not very profitable. But the important question behind that is, well, why? Why or why not? And that's where we want to use data to help guide us in the right direction and focus on the right levers. Yeah, I, I find with the, um, when you look at profit and loss accounts and statements and things like that, that they're normally, it's like, a, for me, it's a bit of a, when I first see a business, it's like an early warning sign of where things might be wrong, just something that's misfiled in the wrong account. So it's, it's you know, it found its way into the overheads when it should be in the cost of sales. And therefore, it's like showing the wrong gross profit margin, then might not impact net profit necessarily. But if you've got the wrong GP in there, all of a sudden, you, you're making very different decisions in your business, 100%. and being able to sort of track, track those through. Um, in in terms of like industry benchmarks for agencies, what do you where do you feel they should be sort of aiming for? Let's I know it's going to vary depending on the size and scale of the agency, but let's say maybe the six and early seven figure agencies. What sort of benchmarks do you typically tend to work to? Yeah, I mean, frankly. <laughs> 
this is going to sound condescending, but like, it's not a real business until you're at seven figures. Let's be honest. Like, and, and I'm, uh, we're not quite at seven figures yet either. So I say this from experience. It's like, yeah, I've got a few employees on my team, but like the business just doesn't have enough substance and maturity. Until Fine, you we've get just there. lost about 15 people off the live stream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this is just the reality, right? And I think like when you're first starting out, you, you hear about people doing 10, 20, 30 K a month. And you think, wow, if I could just get there, and then you get there and you realize it's like, I just have a lot of problems right now, like expensive problems. And there isn't enough scale for the business to feel stable until you kind of cross over seven figures. So until you get to that point, you know, don't worry too, too much about this stuff. The fundamentals should be in place. And we'll talk about those benchmarks. But once you get up to seven figures, then these benchmarks start to become a little bit more meaningful because you're starting to create, you know, I think a little bit of a more stable foundation, you're probably able to pay yourself um, closer to a market rate, which likely wasn't possible before you've been able to buy back a reasonable amount of your time. And now we're starting to formalize things. So assuming you're at a million dollars in revenue or more, um, the benchmarks are delivery margin is what I'm going to call it. Because when I call it gross margin or contribution margin, accountants have a different idea of what yeah. belongs in cost of sales. And it's, it, you know, we devolve into this argument about semantics, which I don't want to do. So delivery margin, which is how much money is left after the thing you promised the client is done and delivered, right? And that includes the cost of the time that went into doing that, whether it's payroll or it's freelancers, and it includes some of the shared delivery costs that might be included in that. Like you pay for a Figma subscription, you pay for Adobe Creative Cloud, like things that are not just for one client, but your team needs in their toolbox to do their job you should have at least a 50% delivery margin on your profit and loss statement. So basically, you don't want to pay more than 50 cents to earn a dollar. Once you take that out, then overheads are usually going to be between 20 and 30%. Most people falling right around 30%. I like to break that down into sales and marketing, 8 to 14, admin, 8 to 14, and facilities, if you have some, 4 to 6. But if you don't, then you can reinvest some of that money back into sales and marketing admin. Those are loose benchmarks because, of course, you're going to decide if you want to over-index on administrative um, staff and try to buy back a bunch of your time and have a good lifestyle business. You want to over-index towards sales and marketing and grow. But ultimately, if you can keep your overhead expenses towards about a 30%, that leaves you 20% EBITDA as the bottom line. And that to me is kind of the floor of what is healthy as an agency. 20 to 30, you're doing really well. Anything below that, you're probably leaving money on the table. And in terms of like measuring this stuff, like what, um, from a practical perspective, that, I mean, you must be sort of using software. What would you sort of recommend as a good place to sort of start you know, if somebody wants to have a bit more data in their business. Yeah. So, I mean, level one, you just got to have a, an accounting tool and that doesn't have to be rocket science, QuickBooks, Zero, Wave, um, you know, anything really. The more important thing is not necessarily the tool, but, and this is going to be true about all of them. It's not the tool, it's how you use it. So the big mistake I see people make, for example, in QuickBooks or in Zero is all their payroll goes into one big account. All their software goes into one big account. Their cost of sales are not really clearly defined. And usually I like to use cost of sales to isolate what, what we refer to as pass-through expenses. So that would be like, you know, you're buying ads on behalf of a client. You're doing print on behalf of a client. This money is passing through you. Use cost of sales to isolate that. And then have a delivery expenses kind of category, which should include payroll and software costs that are related to delivery. And that's how you get your delivery margin. Nine out of 10 agencies that I look at their QuickBooks or their Zero, they have to go in and start manually separating all the payroll out, manually separating all the software out to get their delivery margin. So 
they never look at it <laughs> because there's too much friction. So that's the biggest thing, have an accounting software, that's level one. And then level two is track time. And that is what unlocks this secondary, faster, more precise set of metrics that allow you to influence your delivery margin. And there's there's basically three ways to influence it. I'm happy to talk about what those metrics are, yeah, but go into that's it, kind of the next it. level. Yeah. So the next thing to do is track time. And I get asked all the time, what's the best time tracking tool? And again, the answer is it's basically the one that your team is going to use. Um, so if that's a spreadsheet for you, cool. If that's a resource planning, you want to do centralized time tracking where a project manager tracks time on behalf of the whole team, that's fine. Usually you need very low client dilution in order for that to be reasonable. So that means people aren't working on more than two or three projects at a time usually. Beyond that, you generally have to get into time sheets. So this is where you know we're talking about harvest and toggle and click time and ever hour and insert a thousand other tools that are all, when you look at the API, basically the same. So find the one that your team will use and then structure the data such that you've got three levels of very consistent hierarchy, right? You, you know what clients are, you know what projects are, and then you know what roles are within those projects. So when you estimate a project and you're saying, we think it's going to take this many design hours, when you pull a timesheet, you can match that up exactly. Just make sure the structure is aligned. And that unlocks the ability for you to measure the three things that influence your delivery margin. So if we think about what delivery margin is, it's the amount of agency gross income you collected, which is revenue minus pass-through. So let's say a client gives you 10 grand a month, you spend 5,000 a month on Facebook ads, the other $5,000 is your AGI. That's what you've got to earn now as a business with your time servicing the client. So it's AGI minus your delivery costs, which is all the time and cost that goes into getting that done divided by AGI. So that gives you your delivery margin. So there's three ways to move that. The first is lower your delivery costs. And that's fairly straightforward. It's simple, but not easy. It's lower your average cost per hour. If on average, it costs you $100 per hour to pay experts to do the work, then you're going to have to charge probably at least $300 per hour or average at least $300 per hour for that to be profitable enough to scale. But if you can write good processes, invest in good technology, have good systems, and hire people that require less expertise to do that work, they're likely to be more, less expensive. That allows you to drop your average cost per hour. So that's kind of a long-term thing that you want to be focused on is how do we create better systems so there's less judgment required to do this work. Less judgment usually means less experience less experience usually means that they're not going to be quite as expensive. And over time, you can lower your cost per hour. So that is all about basically finding less expensive people to do the same work. Not the most fun way to improve your margins, but it is a, a legitimate lever to pull and can have a big impact. The other side of the coin is how do we increase the amount of revenue that our team can earn without changing their cost structure? And there's two ways to do that. <clears throat> the first is by increasing your average billable rate which really measures on average for each hour that our team spends doing things for clients, how much revenue does that move from you know, our balance sheet into our P&L? How much revenue gets earned? And that's kind of an abstract concept because it doesn't matter how you build the client. If you build them on value, a flat fee, you bill on time, you do retainers, you, you know, do some other contrived way of you know, selling time. Um, 
in the end, it's really a question of how much time did it take us to do this and how much did we get paid? You divide those things, that's your average billable rate. So of course, you can raise your price. That's one way to increase average billable rate. And for most people listening, it's the first place to look. There's usually an opportunity there. And then once you start to reach this, the very real ceiling of you know how much you can charge, the other side of that is saying, how do we spend less time to do this same thing? And you could double your average billable rate by spending half as much time to do the same work. And that comes from, again, investments in technology, process systems, streamlining things, batching tasks, right? Getting people more efficient. And that, if you think about it, when you're buying time from your team, you have 10,000 hours to sell. If you sell those 10,000 hours for $100 per hour, or you sell them for $200 per hour, there's, there's a very big difference there. And yeah. a lot of that just comes down to your average billable rate. So that's the first lever. And then the last lever is utilization, which is if I buy 10,000 hours from my team, do I want 4,000 of those doing things for clients? Sorry, my camera's tripping out here. Or do I want 6,000 of those doing things for clients, right? If I'm selling my time for an average billable rate of, let's say, $150 per hour on average, well, there's a huge difference between spending 4,000 hours earning that amount of revenue or spending 6,000 hours earning that amount of revenue. So utilization really looks at your whole team, all of the capacity that they have, and how much of that time is actually being spent moving revenue from deferred revenue onto the profit and loss statement or getting things done for clients. So if you do some simple math, let's say you have a team of five people. It's about 10,000 hours a year worth of capacity, give or take. If you have a 50% utilization rate, and you have a $100 per hour average billable rate, that team can do a half a million dollars in revenue in that time period. If you increase the utilization to 60%, they'll now do $600,000. So that's a $100,000 increase. The team's not getting paid a different amount. Your overhead's probably not changed, right? That goes straight to the bottom line. If you increase utilization to 60% and increase their average billable rate to 125, that team can now do $750,000. So you've just taken your bottom line profit and increased it by 250K without changing any of the cost structure of the business just by focusing on these two little levers for efficiency. So those three numbers, average cost per hour, average billable rate, and utilization are the ways in which you increase your margin. And you can do it by getting more efficient, by raising your price, or by doing a combination of those two things. And time tracking data is required to measure all three of those things. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of as, as you were talking through all of that as well. And like, thank you for giving us that breakdown because I think that's going to a blow a lot of people's mind. But I hope it also kicks them up the ass to actually want to get interested in data and improve it. Because just it, it sounds amazing, but just moving two metrics can create an extra two hundred and fifty k of revenue. That's going to get people excited. It's like right, we're going to hunt down what because it might not be those two metrics specifically for every agency. There'll be other things which you can kind of move around as well. But I was going to say, as you were going through that, reminds me, um, are you familiar with Perry Marshall? Yes. Yeah. He's a consultant in the in the US and he talks about 80-20 in your business. So where you can see that there's areas where your business is being dragged down, you know, there'll be 20% of the products which you sell, which contribute 80% of the profit, you know, and, and 20% of your employees will be contributing probably 80% of the profit as well in terms of the projects they're working on and various things like that. And it that, that to me though, I... I love the principle of 80-20, but I think in a lot of people, it elicits a lot of fear because generally speaking, it means stripping out 20% of something from somewhere within the business. And most people go, don't want to do that. Don't want to, I don't want to fire people. I don't want to change their roles. I don't want to change the products. I don't want to. So how do you start to overcome 
that resistance when you're starting to help make those decisions with clients? Yeah, well, and that digs into the utility of these non-financial metrics, right? So, you know, again, the problem with financial statements is they'll tell you how the whole business is doing. But when you think about the calculation for average billable rate, for example, or utilization, you can use that to look at any time period in the business. And you can use it to look at any area of the business for which you have the inputs to that metric. So, for example, utilization, you could look at a specific team member, you could look at a team, a department, and you could look at it for a week, a month, a quarter, a year, it doesn't matter. And the timeliness of that is as quickly as your team is tracking time. So if they're doing it every day, you could look at this every day. If they do it every week, you could look at it every week. Same thing is true for average billable rate. You could look at a client, a project, a service line, a product. Uh, for a week, a month, a quarter, doesn't matter. So when you start slicing and dicing the business in that way, these patterns are going to emerge. The the product that you sell for the least amount of money actually has the highest average billable rate because it takes you almost no time to do it. And here you were focusing on selling the most expensive thing that takes your team way too much time to do and is actually creating a lot of indigestion. It just happens to feel like starvation, but what you're experiencing a lot of time is indigestion. So the data helps because it becomes obvious. This is the truth. Selling this is actually better for your business than selling this other thing, even though maybe it's less expensive or it's less sexy or the output doesn't look as good on our portfolio or the brand logo of the company that hires us to do it isn't as fun to put on the website. And then- You don't have to do all this stuff at once, especially if you sell recurring services. There's this concept of revenue replacement, where over time, you could just start to replace inefficient revenue with more efficient revenue. And this is one of my favorite strategies for people that have recurring revenue businesses, um, where they're like, yeah, we've doubled the team, but we're just not that profitable. You start running this report, you start understanding, okay, we have you know, five clients that have an amazing average billable rate. They pay us lots of money. It takes almost no time to service them. They're great. And then we have these five clients that just take all the time out of our team's, you know, work week. Their average billable rate's terrible. When you close a new client, instead of throwing it on the top of the pile and then having to hire more people to do that work, you take that contract, you go to your worst client with the lowest average billable rate, and you negotiate. We need to reestablish our engagement. If they leave, no problem. You replace their revenue with the new revenue that you've just sold, hopefully at much better terms. Or they say, yes, we'll agree to the new terms. And now you have two clients with much better revenue. And we've helped clients grow 30 or 40% year over year without changing their team and having almost all of that go to the bottom line just by replacing revenue. So you don't have to necessarily think about this in terms of like these stark changes. You could just start to identify the areas of the business that need optimization and just start to guide the business towards selling more of the things that are better, replacing the things that are not, moving those people that are less utilized into areas where they can be more utilized and kind of taking it one step at a time and being gradual about it. One one of the areas which I think a lot of, from my experience, a lot of clients that have got really stuck is when you start to break down those different products which they're selling <clears throat> and the ones they're most attached to tend to be the ones that are the hardest to actually do anything with. So if you look at the criteria of, you know, what do you, which products do you love delivering? Which ones produce the most amount of profit? Um, which ones do the clients get the biggest benefit from? So you give them all of that, score all of those criteria and they can rate low on everything except for which products does the business owner like delivering, the agency owner? Like that would be a 10 out of 10. You're like, but it's not producing any revenue. It doesn't really get the client's great result, you know, or they, they don't really love it as much as you do. But they're so, their ego is so attached to those products, I, you know, and we end up having to like, like when you cut through that though, the results are like phenomenal. But 
again, if you've got a client, an agency owner who's attached to like specific products and you're like, this just isn't working for you. How do you tackle that? Well, my perspective, and I've seen this before, um, I've seen agency owners do this, is that generally comes from this tension where they're trying to get two things out of the business that are somewhat at conflict with one another. One is a financial outcome, which has to do with all the, the, the four other elements that you mentioned, right? Is that can we sell it? Do clients like it? Is it scalable? Do we have a good process? So there's that side. And then the, there's the other side, which is their kind of creative fulfillment. And it's like they get creative fulfillment out of doing this work. It's more creative. It's different every time. They get to explore new problem spaces. Maybe they get to work with indie bands that have no money to pay them to do it, but they really love the band. They really love the music. They want to do the creative work for them. And so my argument is, well, let's just completely separate those things. Let's optimize the business such that you can do that completely for free. There is no commercial implication to that. And it can be a purely creative pursuit for you because you've got the financial and time freedom from a healthy business to be able to just go and do that because you love it and not have it undermine everything. So it's like you can have your cake and eat it too. And both of those can be better if we create the separation between those two things. And we don't let your need for creative fulfillment undermine the health of the business, which negatively affects everybody, including your clients and your team. Yeah. So it sounds like then set some boundaries and then have a bit of discipline to reinforce that. So, you know, yeah, put, put 5% or 10% of your time into those passion projects that you absolutely love, but don't, don't do it to the detriment of the the rest of the business and make sure that's healthy. That's it. And take it outside the business. And if you want to do it for free, all the power to you, that's like what you're doing with your free time. And you get to do that because you know that the business is stable, right? And you're not going to have to worry about where your next paycheck's coming from. And you're not going to have to worry about, you know, losing the team, like all that stuff is taken care of. So you can just engage with that creative passion purely from a place of, of, of wanting to be creative. Nice. How did you get into data in the first place? And how, what, tell me the story about how you formed Parakeeto and, and why? Yeah. So, I mean, as, as I mentioned in the, or as you mentioned, I suppose in my intro, um, my first business was an agency we were doing uh, virtual tours for real estate agents, but this was like back when houses were sitting on the market for three years, the prices weren't quite as high as they are today. Um, and I struggled a lot in the early days of that business to measure all of this stuff. And ultimately I left that business because I figured out early on that my delivery margins were not good enough for me to scale the business without having to be the one doing all of the photography. And and this was like before you could do this on your phone. So shooting 16 photos on a DSLR, stitching them together, loading them, it was a whole process and I hated it. So I left that, I got involved in software as a service because I don't know, I'm a sucker for punishment, I guess, and spent several years uh, trying to build a start, a tech startup and failing, you know, several ideas. And eventually a good friend of mine who runs a software development agency out of Boise, Idaho, called me up and said, Hey man, my team spends like two days a week in spreadsheets trying to answer all of these questions. It's a mess. There's got to be a better way to do this. And that was kind of where we got the idea for Parakeeto. It resonated with me right away. Uh, That was about almost five years ago now that we had that conversation. And you know, fast forward to today, we're now a consulting and technology company. So you can almost think of us like bookkeepers for your non-financial data. But the road to get here was really long because we tried to do it 
just with software. Like we wanted to be a SaaS company so bad that we ignored what the market needed, which was like they need consulting around this stuff because the nuances of working through how to implement a system like this are really, really challenging. And we kind of ignored that because our egos were in the wrong place and we were attached to this idea of being a software company because everybody thinks that it's a much better business model than it actually is. <laughs> and uh, for that reason, we struggled to find product market fit for almost three years. And we spent a lot of time and a lot of money building software that every time somebody bought it, they would just come back to us and beg us for help trying to use it and set it up because there, there was a requirement for more of a consultative approach to that. So when we finally embraced that, it changed the business and we've never looked back. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I, just as a, a side note, so I've been looking at a couple of software um, options to sort of bolt onto what I'm I'm sort of doing as well. And um, yeah, there is that point where that um, it made me realize that what I didn't want to do was scale because of all of the challenges and problems that came with that. I did that in my agency days, and it just I've reached a point now with the coaching practice where I'm like I'm quite quite happy with where it's at, but I still want a successful business. So. Um, I, I realized that I can have a successful software business, a successful small coaching practice, and I've got another software business now, which I'm slowly starting to spin up. So there's these extra little bits of the business, which are starting to come together quite nicely. If I'd gone like full gas on all of them, I think it probably would have broken in some way, shape or form. Or if I'd been so wedded to one, like you said, you know, if you if we were like, no, no, we're a software business and that is the solution. Again, that that stops you from making progress. There was something which you shared sort of during your journey. You kind of glossed over it. You kind of like, yeah, we did this and then we did that and then we did that. I want to know about those two pivots that you mentioned. Um, the, there must have been a point where you were like, a bit of fear kicked in and like, this isn't working out and I've got to, I've got to, you know, fess up to somebody, something that it's not working out and I've got to pivot. So I'd love to hear a little bit about those pivots if that's okay. Yeah, of course. So, you know, with the software that that was a long road and anybody who's built software before knows the the grueling process of trying to find product market fit. And it's about customer development and iteration cycles. And so you build something, you go out, you get people to try and use it. It fails miserably. You learn from that failure. You try to fix the software and you try again. And to me, that, that comes down to like surface area with the market and speed of iteration. The problem with software though is like, it takes a long time to iterate on something. It could take a week to change a feature. It could take a month to change a feature. So if, if it takes a month to change a feature, you get 12 opportunities per year to get closer to product market fit. It's just not that much. So that was the struggle for almost three years. And we built stuff, would burn it to the ground, throw it out, build more stuff, burn it to the ground, throw it out. And we were just in this process of trying to find product market fit. And for four quarters in a row, my business partner and I would come to our quarterly planning and we would say, look, this is it. Last quarter, if we don't figure it out by the end of this quarter, both of us have just got to go and get other jobs because, you know, we're fortunate to have lots of other opportunities to pursue. And it was like, why are we still here doing this and not, you know, making any money when we could be like my co-founder could go work for any company in the world and, and get paid a crazy amount of money right now. So every quarter we would come back we would have achieved none of the goals that we set for ourselves. <laughs> and both of us were like, I can't quit on this yet. Because yeah. what changed between the start and the end of the quarter was we had more validation that the problem was real, the problem was severe, and there were no good solutions in the market. The issue was we hadn't figured out the right solution either. And so 
this happened four quarters in a row. And eventually we came to one of our quarterly offsites. And I just asked the question, like, what would we build today, knowing what we know, if we didn't have to worry about profit margins, we didn't have to worry about scaling the business, we didn't have, it could just be anything. No, it doesn't have to be software. It doesn't have to be any particular business model. Just like based on what we know about our customer and what they've been asking us for and what we've seen them struggle with, if we could just design the ultimate service, what would it, what would it be? And we did that brainstorming exercise. And what we came out of that with was a technology leverage consulting service. And it just so happened that it was also really profitable. <laughs> and when we said, okay, well, let's just try to sell this to a few people. So that following week got on some calls and sold in that first month, I think we sold almost $70,000 worth of services and basically went from being stuck at, you know, 10, 15 K a month, which was all services, by the way, that was what was keeping us afloat this whole, the whole time, uh, to, you know, reaching a 70 K a month run rate within five months and then being constrained by capacity and, and then having to, you know, face all of the, the issues that come with scaling a services business. But, um, that was really the question was if we just set our egos aside and we'd stop worrying about what kind of business this is and we stop worrying about our margins for a second and we just look at this through the lens of what do our customers need and what do they want and what are they asking for and what can't they find out there finally we landed on something that was actually compelling and that gave us the foundation to actually build something very nice very nice what are you working on at the moment muscle well, um, what we're working on at the moment is really, I think we validated our process. We validated what we call the Parakeet way, which is kind of our framework for how to define and measure all the KPIs. And so now we're really investing heavily in the backend technology. So when we stopped selling software, the nice thing about that was we brought it in house. And so we could build things really fast because they didn't have to look good. They didn't have to work that good. They didn't have to scale that good because we were the ones using it all to just make our delivery more efficient. Um, so now we've, I think, cobbled together all these like somewhat hacked tools that work to get what we want done. And now we have the opportunity to kind of like really build a platform that's much more robust. And so that's kind of the, the goal for the next 12 months is to build out something that eventually we could go back to commercializing and giving to somebody like yourself, you know, a, a coach that serves agencies so they can help their clients measure these things and we can kind of get back to being a platform. Nice. And you have a um, profit toolkit as well, which you built for agencies. Give us a quick 30 second rundown on that. Yeah. If you were listening to this episode and your eyes kind of started glossing over when I started talking about all the mathematical formulas behind KPIs, this is the toolkit for you. If you know you need to do this, but you need a little bit more time to process it, we've got spreadsheet templates, cheat sheets, training videos, and everything you need to basically start implementing some simple numbers in your business and start improving your profitability. And you can grab all that for free at parakeeto.com forward slash toolkit. Awesome. We'll make sure we share a link to that in the show notes as well. It's in the Facebook Live, which we're streaming out at the moment as well. Um, and we'll also share at the same time, Marcel, we won't have to go through them now, but you've got your social media channels there on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. So there's plenty of opportunities for people to connect with you. I've got one final question, which I want to, um, to ask as well, because it sounds like it's been quite a journey which you've been on over the years to get to where you are today. So um, if we jumped into the fearless business time machine and went back to a point in your past and you had to tell Marcel something T minus X years ago, when would it be? And what would you say to him? Assume you're wrong instead of assuming you're right. And things will move a lot quicker. And I think that that's the big mistake that so many of us make as entrepreneurs is we 
we build products and we build sales decks and we we build all of these things in our business around the assumption that we're right about the thesis, we're right about how our clients want it to work, we're right about how it should be described. And most of the time what we learn is that we're not quite right. And the more we've over-engineered that thing, the slower it is to change it and learn again. And um, I think that's been the biggest wake-up call for me is all the biggest mistakes that I've made in business, the most expensive ones, the ones that took the longer to recover from, were the ones where I thought I was right and I executed like I was. And when I learned that I wasn't, it just took forever to actually benefit from that learning. So assume you're wrong most of the time and execute like you're going to be wrong and plan for it because it's going to happen a lot more than you'd like to admit. But that's how you make progress, I think, especially when you're trying to do something novel and innovative in your space. Very sound advice. One of the things I've noticed is um, with myself and clients both as well, when you assume you're right, think you're right, your focus is so narrowed, like your one degree of focus now is on the one thing that you think is right that you're missing all of that degrees of wrongness around you that actually is pointing you towards being like out there is the right stuff. Um, so yeah, so it makes a massive difference when you can start to broaden your horizons and see the upside and the downside to potential decisions in the future. So it's great, great insight there. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Marcel. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad that you um, we've managed to finally get together and, and get you onto the Fearless Business podcast. Yeah, I appreciate you having me, Robin. This was a real pleasure. And for those of you that don't know, you were on my show a long time ago on the Agency Profit Podcast. So check that episode out. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me on your show. This is a lot of fun. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure, Marcel. I'm glad we managed to sort it out finally. And folks, just a reminder, you've been living, listening to the uh, Fearless Business podcast. If you want to know more about Fearless Business, do head on over to fearless.biz or go to podcast.fearlessbiz to catch up with some of our previous episodes. And we will catch up with you soon for the next episode. Mm-hmm.